Welcome to Vintage Zones Archive. This is your host, Richie Wexler. I'm very proud to present this, this, this episode. It's with a friend of mine, Joseph Gravasi. Uh, Joe has done so many amazing things. Um, he had this really cool art, art, archive project around Philadelphia punk scene that we'll, we'll talk about. He uh, was part of Exhumed Films, who's shown cult movies um, for, for decades in, in Philadelphia. I've been to like 20 or 30 of them, really excellent stuff. He you know, really was a big part of the punk scene in the early days of, of Philly and, and Jersey. Um, and this is, this is part of a series I call Conversation with Friends. It's not heavily edited. Um, it's not, I don't want any of these episodes to sound too perfect, so I don't go crazy on editing. I do some basic stuff, but you know, there might be something in there you make, why didn't they take that out? And I wanted to feel like it's a real, real in real time, um, but it, you know there is it. I mean, we talked for almost two and a half hours. It's only an hour and fifteen minutes. So, but it was a pleasure. Um, again, uh, I don't, I don't, you know, Joseph is just a really amazing, inter interesting person. Uh, for any one of you in terms of has kids around, this is probably rated R and above. We get into psychedelics. We talk about some more adult uh, material. So if your kids are around, get them out. Why are they up so late? Come on, it's fucking 12 o'clock, wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this. All right, thanks again, and really looking forward to uh, sharing this. Uh, I've known Joe. I never know if you go by Joseph or Joe. Uh, I use Joseph, but my father was Joe, so I'm okay. usually Joseph. I'm very cool. Do you care about being called Joe, or would you rather be Joseph? Ultimately, I'd rather be Joseph, okay. but, I, but I, don't, I don't rankle it being called well, Joe. Well, I will I mean, call you Joseph. Yeah. So... Um, and I've known Joe probably for 15, at least 15, 16 years. Yeah, it's been a long time, yeah. My memory is we did something together as, I don't know, there was some connection we made at one of the, I used to um, do something called Handmade Films, which was a puppet film series. One of the only ones in the country at the time. And so Heather Hansen took to hers and we, we lost our, uh, our, our spot. What, wasn't Handmade Films uh, George, was it George Harrison's? Production yeah. company that he uh, what, with like the, time bandits. Yeah, time bandits. Yeah. We just used it because it was like we were showing a lot of stop motion and puppetry, so that was the handmade. Um, yeah, yeah. We made our own silk screens of that, which I mean, you know, it was cool. We did a screening. I thought you were involved. We showed Superstar, and we had um, this person Xander who would perform live music with. Um, she would. She was a color corrector, and she would make her own uh, Super Eight films with like. Puppets on like dolls on like sticks, kind of like, kind of like superstar. Mm -hmm. And then she performed live, and then we showed that. I, th I think that's where I met you, but in that world. Um, and then I, you know, uh, Joe Joseph has done uh, Zoomed. Um, do you believe we give a little background on that world? You don't have to go too deep, but just, you know. Uh, well, so for the, for the film stuff, uh, I guess the, the first thing I did was I did a thing called Bizarre Videos through the '90s, which was bootleg. VHS tapes of, of weird stuff, you know, kind of setting the scene for the DVDs and things that came later. Uh, and I had started off doing hardcore shows, punk shows, uh, from the, the very late 80s into the late 90s. But going into film, the first thing was Exhumed Films. And 
Go on, sorry. Oh, yeah. So, is that, so that was me and three other individuals. Okay. Um, and Exhumed started in 97 and runs to the present. And that was showing films on film, 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter only, not doing video, although occasionally we do little interstitial. What did you, I mean, I know you specialize in, but for the viewers who don't know, what, what was your. Yeah, it would be cult films. So, horror films, exploitation films, yeah. uh, you know, that whole, the whole gamut of what is generally considered to be cult cinema. Looking back at those times, what would you say? I mean, I hate to ask these like desert island questions, but what would what were some of the maybe two or three that were most memorable or you were proudest of? Well, a lot of times these things were not available really anywhere, okay. and and Harry Guerrero and Dan Frego, who were two of the members of the yeah. group, were adept, especially Harry, at procuring prints of things that sometimes had never actually even been screened anywhere. Nice. You know? So they had no video presence, no VHS, no DVD and also no theatrical screening. So occasionally things like that would come up where he would go through an archive or buy a set of films from people and find these, these oddities. Now the films aren't necessarily the greatest film you've right. ever seen, but you've never seen it and no one else has. So you're sitting there watching this thing on school like that. But there's a, there's a great, you know, you look at some of the old Roger Corman, there's a greatness to schlock. There's some movies that are schlock, but they're so, you can tell the art and care that went into them. Yeah, 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 for sure. And then other things are, you know, actual, so-called art films, yeah. and, and they they were being presented on a screen, a pretty good size screen. You know, we moved to various places, so we started off at an old Art Deco theater in South Jersey in Mount Ephraim, the Harwin Theater. That, now, was, did you? I, I went to a few screenings there. I don't know if it was that one. The one I went to was more like a multiplex theater, if I remember. Like, yeah, that was um, a little bit later. Okay, so that okay. was that, that was, was like, yeah. What so year are you talking about? The the, the year we started was ninety seven. Okay. Um, so that was that predates um, my my West Philly years, so that's probably why I, did, I, I had no idea about it. Yeah, so the, so those shows that that particular theater, it was owned by a mafioso who, as the story I just told to me, was it was given to his son, uh, who was just kind of a fuck up, and it was his job to just run that because he needed something to do. Yeah. So they would run second run films, but they'd be open to rentals. So. From the very early, from the late 80s and the early 90s, we would rent the place for punk shows that we would have there. Prior, in the movie theater. In the movie theater. Nice. So you would have, because it was, had, it was a vaudeville stage that they had there. Apparently one of the Three Stooges peed in the bathroom upstairs, we were told that before. <laughs> I think it was Mo. We have some of um, Mo's pubes here. <laughs> Mo pubes, <So>. possibly <laughs> adhering to the seat. So um, all they wanted was money, and we didn't have yeah. to pay them very much. So it's it's a strange. What was the rent? Like fifty bucks, hundred bucks? It 200? was something like that, and we would have you know God's worst PA set up there, and the bands would play on this big stage, which would look weird for the bands, and the audience would be kind of crowded into the aisle because no one was going to sit in seats and watch punk bands play. Right. So they would try to slam dance and such in in this narrow aisle, and then the security, so to speak, of the place would come out and start screaming at everybody, no, no, you can't do that, you can't do that, and people would do it anyway, because, you know, why not? But it got to the point where bigger bands who were coming through would wind up playing there, like Born Against or Neurosis, and these were significant bands playing yeah. at this really dinky place, which for us was great, because it was harder for us to get into the city to see the shows. So, as I know a little, you know, a little bit about your world, I mean, there's a heavy influence on Punk music, I know you played in some bands when you were younger. I, I was in a, a band well, briefly called the Orgasmic Toilet Band. Okay, but was, you come, I mean, you were in a punk band. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. You're sure. coming from a member as, as a fan and then curating to a certain extent. Yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you're also in the film. Yeah. Um, I guess the question I would ask, have there ever been moments that are pure, like, crossover or those two elements together where you got to show, like, a, I don't know, like a rare 
concert film or, or that kind of thing where those two worlds converged in terms of your work in film and punk? There were not so much with punk. I think that what we tried to do with the film screens was have more of the spirit of punk. So there were probably films that were, you know, punk or punk adjacent, but there aren't really that many great punk films. There are films that have punks, kind of a punk exploitation right. thing where they're rather silly. Uh, but more of the idea was that the punk shows were meant to engender a sense of community, nice. to, to bring people together so that they were all active participants in these shows, so they all felt that they were welcomed into it, everybody was welcomed in, everybody took part, maybe somebody's cleaning the floor, someone's helped set up the PA, somebody's yeah. selling a zine, someone made some hardware. It's a punk DIY aesthetic of coming together as communities. Yeah, yeah, together. and then that fosters people creating friendships, because we had seen, my brother and me and, and the other people who were part of our group called the Cabbage Collective, we had seen... Tell me, tell me about the Cabbage Collective? So we were, we were called the Cabbage Collective. So Cabbage Collective was uh, a group of individuals. So it was, it was my brother Bull and I and okay. Chris Fry and several people who were in his band and Tell Jack me Langham. real quick, just, just because I don't know these people, just give me yeah, a little background. If you don't so, mind giving me a little more background. Oh yeah, no, so, so, so the, idea, the idea was that we... From when I was a teenager, I went to hardcore shows in Philadelphia. Okay. So and you're talking I, about you're, you were born in seventy one. I was born in seventy one. Okay. I started going to shows in eighty seven. Okay. Uh, so so that's, I was I, was I just want to give it time. For yeah, I was sixteen. I grew up in Blackwood, New Jersey, which was a working class blue collar suburb of Philadelphia. That sort of thing did not exist there, um, and there was no art. In eighty seven, it didn't exist. I mean, no, no. Not where you were. Not not where I was. Okay. I mean, it existed in the world, but I mean, but not where around. Because I know like City Gardens was that area, correct? No, these things were in the city, and they were in Trenton, New Jersey, which is not black. Just I not mean, where you grew up. No, I mean, where I grew up was just nothing. Small town. Is <laughs> it know? more a small town? It's not or a small. Like it, a, it's a it's a suburb. It's like a grouchy working class suburb of Philadelphia. Like strip malls, like Roxborough. Yeah, it, it is. It is sort of similar to Roxborough. Uh, the way that Roxborough used to be. Roxborough is a bit more bougie now. Yeah. And Blackwood, where I grew up, has gotten progressively worse. Okay. So, um, worse is in more bougie or, or, or No, no, worse, worse is in, when I grew up there, there were a lot of families with kids and we would go off on bicycles yeah. and ride into, there was like a tiny little patch of woods behind the grocery store filled with like, you know, magazines on the ground and like, trash and stuff and that was our little plot of woods or we climb into okay. water drains but essentially like kids could get off on their bicycles and go off and just do shit for the day okay which never happens today it's so it's it's funny like i mean i grew up in northeast philadelphia which is not that different from what you're talking about yeah and you know i didn't i was i was weird i was an artsy kid like i didn't love growing up there but you know growing up in the 70s in like this community where you just go over your friend's house and there was yeah. you know we had i don't know i mean at that time in philadelphia at least we had like four main stations and maybe seven UHF and half of those you couldn't get very well. Yeah, yeah. We had Atari. Like you had to use your imagination. You oh, had to. Absolutely. And I, and, you know, and I, and, and I mean, again, your generation with me, where I didn't have a cell phone until I was fucking thirty. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a computer in college. Yeah. You know, and I feel like there's something I try to go back to that because my brain has never really been accumulated, made to deal with all the noise and all the shit. Right. Well, I mean, if you look at all of human evolution all of this technology appears very, very, very recently. So the brain doesn't really have a chance to evolve into this heavy technology that's yeah. constantly bombarding with words and symbols and ideas and questions. And I think that that can have a, a really detrimental effect on the human brain and its yeah. ability to process, and also its ability to 
achieve some state of calm, you know? You're constantly distracted. I mean, if you say you have ADHD, I'm you're like, probably entirely a product six, of... Six different variations. Yeah, I mean, it's probably <laughs> largely from, from your environment and everything that surrounds you that you're just constantly being bombarded. I, I, I don't know. I hear that to a certain extent. I don't know, one of my favorite filmmakers is Richard Linklater. I know it's problematic for some people, but to me, he's one of our great American filmmakers. Yeah, no, I think, why is it, I mean, is it problematic? I just think, like, people just get caught up in, like, oh, he made, they don't know enough about him to understand his body of work. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that guy made a day, it's a big deal. Like, they don't really understand, yeah. like, what went into that movie. Yeah, which is a great Or movie. any of his films. Yeah. Oh, uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I saw it in the theater when I was 22, which was a very good time. It's, I mean, I saw it before Sunrise in the theater, and those films really, certain, I mean, I'll ask you the same question, but certain films, kind of burned holes in my brain, so to speak, or burned memories in some ways. Yeah. What were, um, well, two questions real quick, they're kind of related. Well, actually, give me one second. I just, I just want to get back to, I just wanted to, I kind of didn't really set up a thing with the cabbage leg. So the idea when I wanted to get at was that when we went to these shows in the city, we were kids, it was difficult to get into town to see things. Uh, we went to shows in various parts of the city where we would take in the L and all this. Okay. And these shows could be very violent. Um, there would be, people beating the shit out of each other. There were a lot of skinheads at the time. Bottles were being thrown, glass all over the place. You know, this is what I came into. And it was very different from the idea of what I thought punk was going to be from reading the lyrics, which were very egalitarian and very much about politics and community and this and that. So we, as kids, wanted to see something that more reflected our values. We didn't do drugs. We didn't drink. You, we would you identify straight edge back in the day? I feel like I, you, you... Many of them did. I was more straight edge adjacent because I was a Dago, so I drank some wine you know, with right. my spaghetti or something. I wasn't doing drugs and drinking, but at the same time, I didn't want to say I am a this, and that precludes doing all of these other things. Right. But you were leaning and you were clear-headed enough to yeah, want yeah. to be able to want to be exper to experience things. Yeah, enough. exactly. And it's not, it's not something that we wanted to foster because we were around people that we saw move into drugs like heroin, some of whom overdosed. People made bad decisions, fucked their lives up, and a lot of these people that we saw were really bright. Like they were very creative people who endeavored to destroy everything that was wonderful and creative about them. Did you so, lose a lot of people you knew back in the day? A pretty good number of people over the years like here. 10, there. 15? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that many. I, I mean, maybe, maybe on the periphery, but, but among closer people, yeah. there were a few. And I don't, even, I don't want to say their names no, because I don't, I don't know that even that the family acknowledges that that was the thing, but yes. we know. So when we did something, we wanted to do something publicly, we wanted to promote these more positive values. We wanted people to feel a part of it. We wanted everyone to feel a part. And we didn't, we didn't allow people to smoke or to drink or to, to, you know, to do any kind of drugs at the shows. And That's really admirable. Yeah, and that, because we saw what happened in these other scenes. And sometimes yeah. you would have a band, a local band that was really popular. And if the singer of that band was sticking a needle in his arm, then you've got 14, 15, 16 year olds like, wow, he's so cool, I want to be like him. And our thought is, fuck that guy. You don't want to be like him yeah. because you're because you're not gonna it's not gonna go well for you, okay? So, in doing the cabbage collective shows, the shows where we got together as a collective to do these these DIY events, that's what we wanted to try to promote. There. So that's where we started, at not under that name, but we started at that uh, the movie theater 
and then we moved into the city and started at 48th and Baltimore. There was a church oh, there, the, ca the cavalry. I live right across the street from uh, yeah, the That's where you started doing? The cavalry church, you know, at 48th. Just punk shows? I mean, I, live, I literally live across the street from Yeah, in their basement nice. was where we started doing the shows. And, and that was strictly punk, not film or anything? Just you're still we, like we did spoken word events okay. and things like that. Nice. But, but most of the stuff was punk or punk related. Um, unfortunately, uh, we did a show where it drew in a lot more other people who stood outside and drank and smoked and caused problems in the church. They asked us not to have that. We couldn't control those people. Uh, somebody put graffiti in the bathroom, and we wound up using losing access to the space. It's fine because the rotunda has like functioned that same way, although it's kept it together. But it's it's had to fight a lot of that kind of behavior. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it's a dry space. Yeah. So that's when we moved to the church in Center City. Okay. Uh, so. We, Unitarian? Unitarian Church, okay. yeah. So we, I don't think we I realized were, you were doing something. Yeah, we were the first ones to use that. And then okay. R5 uh, came uh, not long after us to start using it as well. And then once we stopped, they were the exclusive ones to use it. Were they kind of biting off of your thing, or are they doing their no, own? No, no, they weren't biting. I mean, okay. Agnew was always a good guy. He, he was like, doing I don't a lot know, of, right. He seemed like a good dude. Yeah, he was, he was doing ska shows there okay. at, the, at the time that we were doing hardcore shows. Okay. So, and other people used the space, but I think that we, Cabbage Collective, had used it most consistently cool. for those years. So you helped you help build that as a yeah, DIY a, punk space. Yeah, as a cool. yeah, because we were also using like Fake House and some of the, of the Kill space. Time? Kill Time. Oh my yeah, God. Like, Can I tell you a quick... Uh, yeah, yeah, please. So I was living in Mount Airy with somebody. Not, I was not meant to live in Mount Airy. Um, I left there and then moved to West Philly when I was around 30, I guess. My first night I went out to Kill Time. It was the nastiest drag show in town. Somebody was already selling sandwiches with cigarette butts in it. Um, I saw Dyke. You remember, you know, Dyke? Uh, is, it, is it a band? Dyke was one of Darren... Darren's oh, what of his uh, identity project? Paul. Oh my God. He <laughs> got, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll, anyway, that was my first night. Yeah. And then it, we'll go back to Darren. So, da yeah, I didn't. Darren. Uh, tell me how you know Darren, because I've got some Darren stories. Uh, Darren is, is still an amazing Philadelphia institution, even though he's totally uh, he, insane. Is he still day. a Philadelphia institution in so much as does he still perform? Does he do things? I, I mean, I, I've been out of the booking. I mean, I booked from like 1999 to 2009. That was my 10 years of booking. Yeah. In that time, I booked him. One time, he didn't like to be, he didn't like to be reminded of his other identities. So if you called him to book him, like, hey, I want Froggy or I want Muscle Factory, yeah. he would get, he would, he wrote me an all caps letter that was so angry about like, I'm part of the system and I'm the, I'm the man and I'm definitely not the man. I was never the man. Um, but it was just because I asked him to do a particular thing. I, and yeah. And what was interesting about him, which I found other people, I don't know if you found this, have you dealt a lot with like concept bands or concept people that are like, a people that perform as an alter ego? Do you, have you ever dealt I, with I haven't dealt a lot with that now, so I... I had two inter interactions with people that identify as an alter ego. Problem is, they, when, they, when you book with them, they're also their alter ego. They don't discern alter ego from stage to uh -huh. life. So are they method acting through their lives? I don't know what it is. I, I know I dealt with this. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to name names. Uh, there was this person I knew who had a conceptual band, but they were one person. I did a lot of booking. I did. I kind of did what you do. I mean, I, I, I. What I'm guessing from your world is the the same thing. The reason you did punk shows is the same reason you did films to bring people together. 
to share, you know, fandom, but to also give people a place, you know, to be. I mean, do, yeah, you, yeah. do you identify on your own of having needed that, and is that something you kind of give because you would have wanted it to exist when you were young? Is, is there any tie in that way, or uh, not to clearly? No, I, su I suppose to an extent. I mean, I don't, I, I felt like that was what I learned from punk and wanted to take forward in, into other areas. So yeah. the film screenings exhumed or anything that I've done on my own hasn't been expressly punk, but has, has employed the ethos because I felt like in creating that community, I mean, it makes a certain financial sense if you want to just take it that way. Right. Whereas people will keep coming back, but also it's fun, it's nice, you know, it's, it makes it enjoyable. Um, I think what I'm getting at it, it seems like you were, I was building community. My intention when I started doing shows was I had a few friends that died without insurance, mm -hmm. and I wanted to have a community that I could like, at least raise a few bucks so that to wait. my friend of mine didn't have any money, I could at least see the doctor. Yeah. So, but it was the intention of community building, which it yeah. seems like, I, I get the fact that you, you were also building community, even if, even if it was financially welcoming, it seems like you like to bring people together. No, I, you know, I, I did, and I yeah. do. But, uh, and also, at least for the, my own events, I like making money because I like money. Like, I didn't money? Grow, there's nothing wrong with money. No, I didn't grow up with money. Yeah. I had to make money. I didn't go yeah. to college. My parents had dollar zero. You know, so... Plus, you can't make any... You can't do screenings. You can't fucking do photography. You can't do shit without money. No, I mean, we would have people when we did shows who would come up and say, like, hey, man, I don't have any money. Can you just let me in? And I'd say, no. No. <laughs> because if they said something like, but I'll mop the floors right. afterwards. Okay, trade, that's trade fine. We, we can work that out. Trade but, economy is, to me, very interesting. Yeah, because right if I think that this kid has rich parents, like, what did your parents do for a living? You know, I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying this to them. Right. And it's, you know, my, oh, my father was a lawyer, whatever. If I know these people have come from more money than me, and regardless of their stupid mohawk and their shitty garbage clothes, <laughs> you know, I know that there's an ability to pay for that. And this band has to eat, has to put yeah. gas into their yeah, vehicle, yeah, yeah. and also has to live. So yeah. you need to participate and you need to contribute something. And it's not, a, I they love, go I love hate relationship with human beings with yourself. Yeah, yeah. I don't, as as I don't have to fucking love anybody, and yeah. I also don't owe someone entertainment. They yeah. don't need it to live. They need to do something yeah. as well. Yeah. I put you in a category which, which might be insulting, but it's not meant to be. Like One thing I want to make is a documentary called My Favorite Assholes. And I don't think you're an asshole, but I think like you, my, when, I, when I talk about assholes, I mean people that are assholes for other, benefit of others. Mm -hmm. Like I think about like um, old school, like Bernie Burlstein, yeah. like Chef Gordon, these old school, like I would have, again, my, right now I'm getting to live a little bit. My dream has always been kind of like an old school, like manager. Like, yeah, look, I grew uh, up uh, from, Harlan Ellison was like my other father, the writer Harlan Ellison. Okay. I don't know how familiar Tell me more about that. that, I don't know. Harlan Ellison was Jewish, now, he, if you said he was a science fiction writer, then he'd punch you in the face. But he, he, was, he was like a physically a very small man with a very big mouth who was a very fantastic writer who was also very aggressive okay. uh, and also very much liked his money and had great stories of ma mailing people dead gophers and like, getting into fights with people and stuff. And he had eight hundred wives and all this. But he, he also did a lot of social commentary. And as yeah. a kid, reading his social commentary from the 60s, I absorbed that and I absorbed his certain elements of his personality, his kind of What rash. kind of social commentary? He, I would say that he was mostly of the left, and he would review television programs and media put through the lens of some politics, and he was a consummate wordsmith. So if you were getting dissed by Harlan Ellison, you couldn't walk out of the room. I mean, he would decimate you, and he was deadly funny as well. Is there like a bit of a Jimmy Breslin in him? Is that, is that, I mean, I, I, it's my own context for that personality, Jimmy Breslin. 
Is it in the same? Imagine the most agitated Jew in the world. You know, this is Harlan <laughs> Ellison. Right? It's, I think that's my life. might be my life. Yeah, I mean, this is... I mean, <laughs> yeah, so you I, you would love Al. Like, if you yeah. listen to him... What's his name again? Har, Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N. Later on, will you send me some stuff? I'm not, I'm not a yeah. big reader. I just, my attention span is fucked, but... Let, yeah, I, you, I mean, you could find him speaking at different okay. conventions and stuff, but this yeah. is, he wrote one of the most famous episodes, episodes of Star Trek. Which and one? He, uh, the City at the Edge of Forever. What's uh, the it, I don't... It's been a while. Okay. Kirk and Spock go through... I don't know. Wait, I don't right. have to go back and watch it, but... In any case, Ellison's writing, both his fiction and his nonfiction, was extremely influential to, okay. to me. So nice. if I am an asshole, and also my father is an ass, was an asshole, and I don't mean that as any insult to him. <laughs> from a family of assholes. Yeah, but you have a, you know, a grouchy, yes. you know, someone of Sicilian descent who had done two combat tours in a war yeah. and did physical labor you know, through his whole life. Um, that is not someone who's going to be having a, a discussion about art or theater with someone or someone's pronouns or whether someone should get in for free to the show. You know, so, th so that's who I'm growing up under, is a, is a and, very aggressive force. And to, to, just, uh, and to interject, like, you know, when I say my favorite, I mean, these are, it's my favorite assholes. It's like, you know, people like, I mean, I don't know how you feel about Bukowski, but it's like people that are just smart enough to know how dumb the rest of us are and, like, just are just going through the world being like, what the fuck, every day? Yeah, yeah. But they're, like, kind people. They give, but, you know, there's a certain protection. Like, there's a certain protectiveness. Like, I can, I can function as an asshole to protect other parts of my personality. When I do booking for my photography, they're booking with more of an asshole version of myself who's, mm -hmm. who's about, I'm like, I'm not doing shit without getting paid. You pay me up halfway up front. Pay the rest at the end of the day. You don't get your photos so you get paid. Yeah, because you have your, your work has value. And if you don't right. think your work has value, then you're just going to give it away. But, but I, think, it I, I think you have to also, like, in that situation, I have to be, I have to assume they're all going to fuck me. And, and, and know, they probably would have given the opportunity. Yeah. Many, many people would. But that's what I mean. I think some of the greatest people I know, some of, my, the, some of the people that are my favorite are, are, are some of the kindest people, even though they might be part asshole, because they have been through shit and they know. They also like know how to treat people, but only people that are worth being treated. Like, you know, I can be very generous to people that I know are worth it. I can be an asshole to people that aren't worth it. The reason I mentioned you also is you had your own archive. I'll call it. Would you call that an archival project? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. can you explain that project real quick? Uh, well, Loud Fast Philly was uh, my my little uh, love song to uh, to punk in Philadelphia, where I wanted to talk to a, a wide variety of individuals. I wanted to look like the city of Philadelphia, so I didn't want any like single one type of person or I wanted it to be a broad spectrum of people, roughly from their 70s at the oldest end of the spectrum to someone who was maybe 19 at the youngest end, uh, to talk about the history of punk in various forms in the city of Philadelphia, and then interweave it into uh, history of, of other subcultures or cultures in the city, and then the, the history of the city too, its architecture, you know, physical venues that people went to to see things. What did they look like? What did they smell like? Where were they? How were they operated? Wow. What is there now? So that it would create this almost a sort of map uh, of these these stories. I called it an oral history. Um, oral, like oral, oral, yeah, oral, okay. like a voice, yeah. Nice. Uh, where because it was all sound recordings, and then I worked with the photographer Karen Kirchhoff from yeah, yeah. Uh, because I felt like one of the most important other aspects of it, and why it's not a podcast, but it was a a project because the visual element had to be as important as the audio part. And did if it you, was a, 
real quick, did you also collect like archival images of the bands as well, or just No, well, all I wanted to do was have the voice of the person. So I would sit with the person, okay. and we would talk for however, whatever length of time, sometimes 45 minutes, sometimes several hours. I put up the interviews unedited so that I, would, I had hoped that they would flow to kind of tell the whole story of the person from growing up and what, what was their neighborhood like, what was their family like, okay. how did they find these things, how did they move nice. through the world. It would be very similar to what we're doing now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice. And then um, and then Karen would photograph them. I didn't want pictures of them when they were younger. I didn't want performance clips. I wanted their faces, and in sort of a stark way, to show the roadmap of life on individuals' faces. For younger people, there's not so much of a roadmap. There's a certain glamour of youth. Older people carry the weight of experience. But through all of them, it would create something of a portrait of the city that I sometimes love, and the music that uh, that I do love, and then all of the other aspects, because it create it, you know it, it, the tendrils go out into other art forms um, that I was also interested in, would be you know fine art or film yeah. or uh, or activism for for some people, um, and that was the idea of the project. So that when you looked at the page where it had all the interviews and you see all the different faces, you would say, oh, this actually looks like Philadelphia, like this looks like a representation of the city, um, and whether that was. Successful or not is up to the individual, but that was the idea yeah. behind it. And Let me ask you a quick question. So, I mean, I'm a photographer. I think a lot about environment. I think a lot about, like, taking photos of people in places that they feel like they're home. Were the photos also designed to represent their life or a certain scene? Like, were you shooting at the locations they were part no, of? No, they were mostly done where either where I did the interviews or where... Uh, Karen would, would I talk to them about the okay. photographs. So sometimes they may say a preference, like, oh, there's a really nice, I don't know, bridge where I, I think I should be photographed. Then you would do that? Yeah, and then Which, she, she yeah. I would leave that to her. So that that's was, an interesting way to make people feel at home. Yeah, so they would be in collaboration nice. because we wanted these to be, we wanted the portraits to be beautiful and we wanted the people to be happy with how they look. In the end, she couldn't photograph everybody because there were schedule conflicts. So yeah. some of the people were just photographed by me. I'm not a photographer. Th those were serviceable photos. Yeah. Sometimes for select individuals, she'd be able to go back and re-photograph them so that her real picture, so to speak, and would I, be there. Just because I'm a shitty reader, like I've, I've definitely been always curious about the project. I've just never... Well, one thing is, where can I find it? Where can people find... It's you, out loudfestphilly.com. It's out loudfestphilly.com. Okay. And then it also it's on through all the podcast things. So okay. you can listen to So we'll really link, we'll link to that at the end. But um, um but I knew the photos more than I did the interviews. Yeah. Because I mean I was a big fan. I mean growing up in West Philly, there are certain photographers that were like the main photographers in West Philly and she was one of them. Yeah. And her work is amazing. Yeah, her work is great. She got to do a show from it, so nice. uh, she had the stuff on display at the Grindcore House. So this is one of the kindest. I mean, I know you know her deeper because of your brother. But yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. She's one that's been super kind. Oh, ab absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah a very, very really, good really human lovely being. person yeah. and a great photographer and nice yeah. to work with, who also could make the interview subjects, the photography subjects, feel comfortable. And I think so, that's what makes someone a good photographer when you can. I mean, I'm not going to speak myself, but. The ability to make somebody feel honored and at home and welcome, just like you're talking about with your own world of yeah. punk, that it seems like, you know, I'm sure you probably chose her for the same reasons. Yeah, yeah, I felt like she has a certain empathy to her and a pleasantness that she could just have a little chat with them, they would be more calm, yeah. and what she'd be getting from them is something that they would be happy with the way that they would be yeah. captured, because they've got to live with this thing. And, you know, I, I, there was a performance version of this, so I showed clips and talked live about it and had certain members of bands like the Morphines or something come up and talk about things and um, you know it was really important 
fair to, to kind of show all of that off in a, in a live setting, at least for a little while. No. Well, I mean, fortunately, because I got to start these projects when I was fairly young, I got to mold them into what they were. So I did the shit jobs when I was really young, yeah. but having done them, I realized I didn't want to continue doing them. I didn't want to go you know, work at the, at the post office at 4 o'clock in the morning just shelving mail. I couldn't go to college. It wasn't an open opportunity, so I could have either joined my father's labor union or gone into the army, and I didn't want to do either of those two things either. So if I wanted to live and eat and live comfortably, uh, I needed to find something that would pay for things. But at the same time, I did have these, these creative impulses. Fortunately, they wound up melding together. That each of these projects, whether it was Cabbage Collective or a fanzine or Zoom Films, they all went from one to the other. And a lot of people were carried on through the process. Yeah. Because if you keep good relations with people and you bring them into the creative process, they're going to help you out with something else later and you're all going to be a part of these things. So people go through this whole spectrum yeah. of interconnected projects. And that, speaking of Jim Henson, that's how he works. He brought people in he trusted, he took care of them. Like, I've always tried to pay people, even if, even if I can't. Because when you take care of someone you pay them, you get loyalty. Mm -hmm. Because they know you're honoring them in some way. Yeah. You're not just saying, especially with artists, so I know, you know, I don't know, some of them, you know, there's a dynamic in artists that like, they don't like attention, but they need it. It's, you know, I used to do theater. I, I had the worst stage right in the world, but I needed to perform. There's people that I think just have, you know, not, not many artists can't advocate for themselves. Some of them, even though they're amazing, don't see that. I mean, you make art to heal yourself in a lot of ways. You might still think you're a piece of shit, even if you're making beautiful things. I'm sure you've seen that in some oh, artists. Oh, yeah, I've seen that dynamic play. self-hate, but they're amazing. They're amazing people, but they're still stuck in their trauma and, you know, um, and as a document photographer, some of my favorite are the people that, like, most, two of my favorite photographers, one is Meryl Mussler, one is um, Arlene Gottfried, they shot for 40 years, built an archive, and then someone put their work out, and now they're well-known. Yeah. They just did it for the love. That's my goal. Whatever happens in photography, I don't do it primarily for money because I don't want to. I would hate it if I had it if that was my job. Yeah. But... I'm, my goal is to follow them. Like I think you, what I'm, what I'm relating to you because I know that I think you've made choices of honoring the people in your life, honoring the heroes, your family, your community. That takes a that's a that's a lot of that's very. You might see yourself as a curmudgeon, but to me, you're also a very generous, caring person. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I don't see myself as a curmudgeon so much as. But I just mean, the, but at times. I don't mean curmudgeon. I just mean you also, you know, you're you have some cynicism. Well, yeah, but. Everybody does, and to take your and to take your cynicism, it's, and then it's, you know you have two choices: you can be cynical and you can just give people a lot of shit all the time, or you can be cynical and be like, I'm going to do something that feels good, right? Better. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just, I mean, I think bullies are built from cynicism and from pain. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious. So, have you have you had experience with psychedelics? Like, have you taken? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, do we want to go into this area? Yes. Can I share my latest one? And people, is there a reason you're asking? Well, well, go ahead. Tell me. Tell me. But the thing is, I don't want to dominate this time either. My whole point was, are you on? Do you want to? Is there a reason for that question? If I can ask. Oh well, it's not something that we've talked about, but it's something that, in, in when you had told me about uh, uh, things being based around objects, about things. Uh, I have taken psychedelics. Every time I've done uh, mushrooms, I've set an intention. I've done ceremonies. There's a purpose to it. You can you have control of it in that way that you, I don't think you, I don't think I've ever had control of LSD. It works differently. Mm -hmm. 
but let's hear your, let's, um, you can, you know, you can, we got, we got a half hour. Uh, you can either share your general aspect of, or particular yeah, well, strengths. The, the thing that I wanted to just say about it is that uh, uh, I did certainly did not grow up doing or using any drugs. Yeah. But I was always curious about the psychedelic experience because I had seen it depicted in films. It was patently ridiculous. There's a flying it wasn't Holly Mountain meant to produce effects of LSD? Yeah, I believe so. And if anything could do it, that would certainly be yeah. it. I mean, so I would see these representations in the film, and both from the ridiculous ones, which would be like scare films where the chicken's flying by and there's a swirling kaleidoscope like, and someone the, jumps out of a window. What's the marijuana uh, one? The Reaper Madness. Yeah, yeah like those sort yeah. of things where they're, they're just ridiculous. But I had grown up around a lot of young people that I went to school with who were using drugs regularly and were taking their beautiful brains and turning them into tapioca. Um, that they had decided that they wanted to live in the 1960s, early 70s forever, and were rendering themselves into functional vegetables. So yes. as a young person, I thought, I don't want to be anything like these people. Like, I like my friends, they're fun, but they're kind of stupid. Like, they're doing really dumb shit and they're just destroying their yeah. lives. Like huffing paint and shit like that? Not, well, not so much that, but, there, but there, was a lot of, there was a lot of pot, there was a lot of alcohol, and I was sure there was a lot of LSD as well. Yeah. And these weren't necessarily used as tools for a better understanding of oneself or yeah. one's world. They were used to just kind of leave the world. And I'm like you. I feel like if you use these things to, to, to learn, to experience things, I'm okay with it. But if you're just numbing yourself. Yeah, I'm yeah. you're just pouring a series of, of, of chemicals into your body and rendering yourself into whatever. I don't know, an amorphous blob. I mean, many of them became amorphous blobs, and then they moved on to things that were... Uh, far more pernicious, so they would move on to cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine or all these other gross junk. They are gateway drugs. Yeah, and, and they are. I mean, mostly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Well, for, 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 for a certain, for certain type, people. For a cer yeah, a certain type of I don't think, I mean, I think that's just the whole, like, just say no. I think, like, this idea that you do marijuana once and then you're going to shoot, shoot someone because you're on heroin is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that, that's absurd. But, but the idea that if someone wants to numb their brain, and they're going to need more and more numbing through heavier and heavier substances. I agree. That, that makes sense. I mean, you, we can see that progression. That's the worst case scenario, but I, I you know. Yeah, I, worst I case scenario, that. but not not one that is unknown. I mean, look at fucking, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been around like K.A. and Kensington. Like, it's, it's oh, they're yeah. fucking zombies. Oh, it's yeah. So, people, it's you know. so painful and sad to be, I, I, I can't be there. I can't go around there. It's, it hurts. Yeah, it's, it is absolutely horrifying. Um, but... But there was a, there was always a curiosity because I like this this, this progressive music and the psychedelic music it was clearly fueled by these things yeah. or at least for some of them, um, and I had seen things like the Holy Mountain, which was in a way a depiction. I read that it was literally designed to give people the idea of being on a trip without being on a trip. Yeah, and this you know in, in having then later had the experience, I could I could see that. So for me at least, uh, you know, I waited until I was thirty years old to take any psychedelic yeah. substance. I had just bought a house. My business was going okay. I felt like I wasn't going to go bananas because I didn't know what to expect. Yeah, to make sure you're stable. Enough. Yeah, I felt yeah, like I was stable, and I wanted to be able to see something that I had never seen before. Because I think that if if you're a thinking person, and someone says to you, "If you do this, if you open this door, you can see a whole other world," why would you not want to open the door? Now, you and I probably know a lot of people who would never want to open the door. They don't want to see what's behind the door. The only problem I hear that the only problem with that is even in opening the door, you are possibly putting yourself at great risk. But yes, that is. I think that, it's that's possible, part of it. That's but, probably why you're doing it. But yeah, but but I think that know. most people don't 
ever come to that great risk. No. They, they do have, I mean, what, what I would say to people who, who haven't done the thing is like, imagine you're going to get on this train, and it has, it has a beginning and it has an ending, and while you're on the train, you're going to look out the window and see amazing sights, right. things you've never seen before. It's a long train ride. You're going to be on this train for eight right. hours. You're going to see many amazing things. Some of them might be kind of horrible. There might be creepy things. Maybe you go through mortar for a while. But in the end, the train stops, and you get off the train, and you can recollect, and you can think back of what you experienced, but it ends. But that's a good version. Like, if you look at, like, Daniel Johnson, Daniel Johnson did LSD, and it triggered his schizophrenia. Oh, schizophrenics probably should not be doing this. And, I'm just and, saying, like, there's sometimes there's horror versions even with the best intentions. Yeah, of course, of course. And, and, and I think it is important to know yourself. Yeah. I do think that these things can benefit people who have some yeah. degree of self-knowledge. I'm not schizophrenic. I don't suffer from depression. So I don't have to worry about something being tricked. And I mean, this just my own knowledge of at least, like, at least psilocybin is, you know, I'll get into that later, but, like, there, there's studies and studies and studies that show... This documentary, have you watched that Michael Pollan documentary on Netflix? No, yeah, I just watched that, yeah, yeah. The second episode of Truman, like, you know, yeah, that, yeah. you know, and what's horrible with that is you realize that, like, you know, here's Richard Nixon, see, you know, knowing this drug could do wonders and being like, ah, the hippies use it, fuck them. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, you know, and I feel like, you know, look at how much, look at how much, I mean, people, you know, the first study I talked about was that cancer study where if you can make 90% of cancer patients not be afraid of death, with one trip, why the fuck would you not do it? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand why not. And also, you well, know, money, I, fucking, you know, I mean, politics, money. Right. You know, but, they but want to sell their own version. But going. But, but fortunately, now it, it seems, and they deal with this in the documentary, because there are veterans who suffer from PTSD who have come back from the wars in Iraq and right. Afghanistan, and this is something that that has a certain resonance for me because I grew up around a lot of veterans, and a lot of them had seen combat. Um, that the military becomes invested in the idea of finding a way to help these individuals, uh, mostly men, but women as well, right. deal with this, this tremendous trauma that they went through. But then there are subtypes of like politicians that are trying to demonize it for their own political gain. Yeah, well, of course. Like, doing I mean, great it, harm to people that need the fucking help. Right, I mean, it's, it's one of it's the original... Evilness. It's an evilness in my opinion. Yeah, it's a, one sure. of the original culture wars. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, this is, this is a culture war that's going to date back to, you know, the mid to late 1960s and then just go forward and, remember, and never stop. I took, stop. A, I took a really cool drug class in college. Um, which talk about like uh, you know the classes and how marijuana is the same as like cocaine. Yeah. And how yeah, apparently yeah. the tests were done with monkeys and they gave them like fifty times the amount you'd ever need and they were like oh look it made them dumb they yeah. stopped moving. Yeah, yeah. If you're gonna you know like it's it's so you know anyway. Yeah, if I ate fifty times the number of hamburgers like Donald Trump, I'd be like Donald Trump, a fucking right. retard. So of course if you if you fill yourself just, up. As a special ed teacher, I have to just put in we uh, do okay. not use the R word. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You can take that out of the thing. <laughs> Fucking numb nuts. But, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just have to. That's just my training. Yeah. I'm not offended. I just have to put that caveat I in. understand. But, uh, yeah. We'll probably cover that. But yeah. anyway. any, any, any amount of, you know, excessive amount of anything is going to render into something that's not functioning as fully as you could be, hence Donald Trump and Canberra. And if you're going to use that word, he's the one person I'm okay with it. Okay. <laughs> good, good enough. All right. <laughs> Glad you cut out that caveat for me. I can still, you know, in his, you know, there's, yeah, that is the best one right, for Yeah, you. let's not bother with this. Keep going, sorry. But, let's uh, go yeah. back into psychedelics. Yeah, psychedelics, they a delight. So anyway, um, no, the, the, the point was that it was just, uh, at, at the time that I was able to, to finally experience this thing, um, one could never really see the world in precisely the same way again once you, you have these doors of perception, uh, as, as Huxley would call it, open. You know, you, 
you see everything differently. And I, and I felt like it allowed me to be more um, accepting of my own death, yeah. um, to get less agitated about a lot of things that seem ultimately very trivial. You know, people would, would discuss things or get really agitated about things, and I would think, this is very stupid. You know, because you, you've seen something far beyond this, and when you, you've had this additional perceptions, mundane things seem, I think, much more mundane. Well, so I don't know what you've done. What, what drugs are you talking about if you're okay mentioning? Uh, this, LSD and psilocybin. Okay. So to talk about psilocybin, like, people talk about psilocybin giving you a dose of gratitude. And I think that's what, that's what I'm hearing you, you reference. And, like, I don't know. That, that To me, that drug is giving me such gratitude that, like, people take that in our, our, and don't have anxiety for two or three years or don't have depression because the... The gratitude you experience sticks with you. Also, I've never seen anything better to deal with trauma than psilocybin. Maybe LSD is the well, same. Well, I, I would say that uh, MDMA uh, could could do that as okay. well. But I mean, you're talking about like PTSD. I think for me, my own I don't you know my own trauma or PTSD has been a lot feels a lot better because of having taken mushrooms for years. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that that that, that is perfectly valid. I think that MDMA can work in the what same way. What is MDMA? Uh, 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 Molly. Uh, Molly, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, ecstasy. What's the other drug that people use that forget to get, it, it, like, um... Ketamine. No. Yeah. I've seen people, did, is it, did you see the, the, the documentary about, um, uh, what's his name? David Arquette? Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorites. David Arquette, you cannot kill David Arquette, he does a ketamine treatment. Um, what's the other one? The one that's like, it's like, you see like hobbits and shit or smurfs. It's like a three minute trip. Oh, DMT. Yes. DMT, yes. Anyway, we'll keep going. You so see machine owls apparently. I, I do, I've done DMT twice and I've done it wrong. We could talk to somebody else about this. In a minute, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. waiting for it to. I, I honestly feel like maybe another, maybe I would come back another time and just do that. Cause yeah. I would, I would like to get a panel of, I would, I want to promote this as an idea. Yeah. I might be more interested in maybe getting people together on Zoom and just digging into, you know, more of the people that make this sort of bigger. Yeah, you need to talk to the expert. Yeah, I don't need to do it now, but I think that yeah. might be interesting if you, you know, yeah. to, I'll connect with that, but maybe to do something like yeah, that. I am know. not the expert, so. But I, I mean, I think you have a lot of intelligence about talking about but let's keep going with your story. Cause yeah, well, it's not so much a story, it's just that the idea is that in terms of things that were greatly influential, I think that, that life pre and post that experience and then subsequent experience is very different, um, that fundamentally I remain the same person, I haven't you know, given up on, yeah. say, a core values or yeah. morals or ethics, but at the same time have an expanded view of existence, and and without any sense of spirituality, I'm not a spiritual person, I'm not, I am an atheist, I don't believe in anything beyond what I perceive, but I have seen tremendous beauty and, and, and uh, felt that, that sense of I think there's a certain amount of spirituality. I feel like it's in gratitude that might not be based in spirituality or religious spirituality, but it's is is knowing enough about gratitude to honor it. That, to me, that feels spiritual. I don't. I'm not saying it's in the same way of having to see it as a god, but yeah, yeah. There's something in that that like yeah. if you get, you know. Yeah, you're welcome to join. Thanks. Um, I just want to like uh, make sure you know we're recording this. We're not gonna. Yeah, that's fine. Are you okay with that? Yeah, yeah, um, sure. I might not want to use some of this myself. I'm happy to record it. I would love 
soon. I, I'm happy to have you here for this. I would love um, for maybe to interview you about this stuff, or maybe having a panel and do that. Oh, yeah, for sure. That. Just, uh, I'm happy yeah. to include you now. I just don't want to dig too much about that right no, now. No, no, no problem. But why don't you give some quick background about your understanding of this world? Maybe like a three-minute thing. So I, um, I am what is considered a psychedelic super trooper, a pure psychomat. I, um, I have treatment-resistant PTSD. I've suffered from major depression. Um, I have done psilocybin between a thousand and two thousand times, and I've huh. taken for PTSD intermuscular high dose ketamine as treatment maybe fifty times, which is like the most effective other nice. than MDMA. But I've I've you name it, I've tried it, I've taken it as far as I can go. Yeah. I've been a psychedelic integration facilitator oh, in a group for like years out in Boulder, Colorado with a we co-facilitated. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. I've actually thought about getting into that myself, so I hear that. Oh, it's amazing, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I participate with a group that it's nationwide called the Psychedelic Sangha. It's Buddhists who believe that in, like, the medicinal benefit, or even, like, for me, because I'm an anarchist, cognitive liberation. Okay. It's, like, tied... Can I say again? Cognitive liberation. Okay. It's, you know, so it's the notion of, like, freedom of the mind. Yeah. Like, you know, accomplishing this through meditation, through psychedelic experience, yeah. you know, altered states of varied sorts, right? So I think I have a bit of experience in this area. That's why Joseph wanted me to jump in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I'm sorry in. I screamed about the ketamine, but I honestly... No, no, no I'm happy to have you... Yeah. You know a lot more about this than to me either of us, so I'm happy yeah. to have you part of it. Sure thing, yeah. I'd just rather dig more into it and get it on you, yeah, yeah, on yeah. you better in a formal, like, I, I want to... I think this will be the start, but I want to do a podcast that's starting with this conversation, but then I want to add more about what you've done, your stories. I mean, a lot of this podcast is storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sure. want to do more about yeah. it. Maybe other people you've, you know, I'd love it. If there are people you've worked with who also, like, I want to. Oh, yeah. I want to, friends, yeah. I, I want to use my pla this platform I have for this podcast to promote this stuff because it's, it's healed me. I mean, I've been doing this for, I've been taking mushrooms for almost 20 years. Um, it, I, I've done it, I do it once a year usually on my birthday as a way to just, and I profit, I mean, it's an intention, it's meant to be healing. Sometimes I'm not in the space and I realize it's a waste. I feel like you have to be in a good environment and a good headspace and you have to have an intention. And sometimes I've done it where I'm like, I, it didn't do anything for me because I just didn't need it at the time. Mm, well, maybe though too, it's like what it feels like it's not doing what you need, like maybe kind of like, you know, shifting your perception just a little bit because sometimes, you know, the recreational experience, as yeah. much as we want to just be like, it's medicinal, it's a healing modality, yeah. you know, like, those recreational moments creep in, even don't, you, don't get me wrong, like, I, I, know it, I know to do yeah. it once a year as medicine, uh -huh. I'm just saying that some of the experiences were a little bigger than other ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was, even if I know, I'm, even if I knew I was going to have not a good thing, I would do it anyway. Sometimes I've done it on the, when I was in the worst way to just process mm -hmm. some of the bad shit. Mm -hmm. I've never really been afraid to process dark feelings. Sometimes I've had things I've dealt with that I feel like would have taken six months to process, but I did it with shrooms, I hit it, I, I cried a bunch. I mean, most of my, a lot of my kids are just laughing and crying. Yeah. So let me share, can I share the story with the last one? What's, what's our time frame? 17, I got another 10, I got, when do we want to leave? Uh, you, we could leave at, after 1.30, because I believe it's, 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 two it's, it's leaving at 2.08. Now you're okay. going to have to pass. As long as I get 15 minutes. Is it, if we leave, we can leave by 1.45, which would give you, like, a decent amount of I don't time. need, I need five or ten minutes. Is that, okay. do I have that? Yeah, you have that. Yeah, we can do, I think you can safely do 20 minutes and then pack up. And I, I don't, I, it's just, I don't have that much. I mean, it's a big story. I don't have that much. I don't think it can do 20 minutes anyway. 
But so okay, so I've done this. You know, I'm, I was talking to uh, Joseph about like I've, I for many years I I pick a movie to watch that had some tie in to where I was at, and I would do it. And it would totally like I you know I almost feel like any movie I would have watched I would have learned from. But I do pick things that have things I want to work on, and I, you know I think like anything else like I can relate, I can dig deeper into myself through the protection of another character. If I find a character that I think is like me or, or a circumstance, I can, you know, having it be a little separation. That archetypal journey, you're seeing it in like a bigger way. Yeah, like I'm a performer. I started doing puppets because I wasn't ready to be out there, and that puppet made me almost more myself. I think there's, I think art serves to let us like live through these experiences or books or characters to, to be able to honor ourselves in a way we can't do without it. I think a lot of, you know, I don't know, a lot, of, a lot of artists I know need somebody else to tell them how good their work is. It's the same thing. I think we get more out. We can, certain things we don't hear or we can't say to ourselves. But we can see through a character or see through, or someone else can tell us. So, um, you know, and I've, I mean, I have a bunch of like movies that, I, that were groundbreaking to a point where I'm like, hey, you should watch this movie. And I realized, like, it was good because I was on a lot of shrooms. It might not be a good movie. What, what are some of the movies you're talking about? Uh, you one was the David, Ar David uh, You Cannot Kill David Arquette. One, I, I took half an, a, a, an eighth of mushrooms, five pieces of acid, and probably some, and something else, and I watched uh, Shame? The one, uh, the, the Carrie Mulligan. I think it's called Shame. It has the X-Men guy, I can't remember his name, Michael Fett. Oh, yeah, where he's the sort of sex oh, addict that he's doing. Yeah. I watched that six times in a row, one time on Trips. It, it was helpful, I can't, it was probably more than I needed to. Um, I watched one year, because my birthday is always Jimenson's birthday, 24th, I watched Jimenson's funeral one time. I mean, this is not, I've, I've not done this all the time. And it's funny, thinking about drug films, like I feel like drug films work against, sometimes like, you, Sometimes if it's too much drug reference, you, you can't enjoy the drug because it's too forced. Yeah. Like I think if I were if I tried to watch Fear and Loathing, it wouldn't work. It's too much drug. It's too much. It's already that is already the drug. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we don't need to get too much into that. But mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I did it. Um, you know, I do it on times when I'm off. Like I'm a teacher. I was off all summer, so I do it when I had space and time. You know, I need to have a day or two to rest if it throws if it throws me off. I I did it once. Like I did it six weeks ago, and then I did it two, but a week later. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if I, I was really busy and tired. I just did. I forgot I was in a small rainbow gathering. I did enough for probably five people. Yeah. I didn't. Well, I didn't. I, I knew I was pushing it a little bit. I didn't realize that how much I pushed it. I just. It was just a dose problem. And then thinking about like what you do, like if I would have, if I could have had a therapist there and to control it, I could have screamed. I. I. Well, I'll tell you a story. But it, you know, had I had the resources to be safe. I wouldn't have had any problems. I took too much. Um, my trip was insane. I wound up screaming a lot and crying a lot, and I, my, they were going to call the police. They thought I was killing someone in my apartment. Was it visual? Intensely? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's one of the funniest, funniest and most. Prefer I mean, I, you know, in that documentary, we talked about Netflix. Have you seen the Netflix documentary like Michael Pollan? Oh, yeah. Someone talks about dying reborn. I, I committed. It's gonna sound weird to say. I committed past. I committed suicide of an old life. Mm -hmm. I felt like I'd say goodbye to the world. I wasn't trying to kill myself, but I said goodbye to the world, and I felt like I died and was reborn. Mm -hmm. That sounds insane. No, I can no, tell I you. I, I can tell you when I woke up from that that my life was permanently changed. Yeah. 
I think there's things I was already working on. It doesn't come out of nowhere. But I can tell, you know, but also, like, keep in mind, I did, like, I, I think I did half an ounce mm-hmm. in one trip. Mm-hmm. And it was very strong. Yeah. But, you know, my whole thing, um, you ever see the new Tron movie? Have you watched that? No. It's not great, but there's a, there's a Jeff Bridges is a Tron, is a father. He plays the father of another, of his son. He's like, if I'm going to, if I do, you know, he's like, I'm going to go knock on God's door. If I'm going to do drugs, I'm going to knock on God's door. Not that I, you know what I'm saying? Not yeah. that I, believe, I you know, I don't do microdosing because I don't, because it, well, it's a waste. I'd rather just do a, a giant dose. And if I'm going to go as far as doing it, I'm going to try to do it as much. I, I've overdone it, but it's not necessarily the goal, but I want to have a real experience. But is it overdoing it, really? I mean, it sounds like you got something really It was incredible. the most profound experience. The only thing I regret about overdoing it is I scared the fuck out of my, I mean, my landlord came in. Um, my landlord came in. He was there to help me. He brought someone else there. But let me tell you this story. So... I started doing this podcast, I mean, I've been doing this thing we're doing with Joe, I did a podcast. At some point, I think because I'm interviewing people, I went, I went into the trip and I thought I was, I thought I was broadcasting to the world. I was speaking to the world, in my opinion, and they were listening. And I was like, I was talking as if everybody could hear it at the same time. Yeah. I didn't know that wasn't my reality at the time. Yeah. That was part of the trip. I was, um, I've been struggling a lot with like, I'm a very sensitive person, an empath. I have a lot of love to give. I struggle a little bit when you're trying to show, trying to communicate, trying to love people, and they don't want it. Mm-hmm. So part of my trip was like, why is it so hard? Two things. Why is it so hard to communicate in the world? I feel like with all this technology, you can't ever just talk to someone. So I told them, how, how difficult is it just to fucking call someone and talk when you need to? But also, like, I got into trip about my mother, about why, my mother is like, when I tell my mother something, She's a, she's a giving tree, my mother. She always sees herself in the worst way. I'm not giving enough. If I tell her I love her, she's like, you shouldn't. You know, here's my stump. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's something in there. She's a Jewish mother. She's, yeah. She had a lot of trauma. Her grandmother got shot. My grandmother lost a child to leukemia. My mother was born 15 years after. Mm-hmm. And she got shock therapy. And so, you know, whatever. Like, but, you know, it's also hard when you're trying to love people. I've been, I'm very generous. I feel like I've noticed a pattern where I'm very generous with people and they're kind of throwing in my face. Or I've hurt someone and I, you know, I want to like resolve it. They're just like, it's your fault. And that's just been, that was kind of where I was at. So I just, the, the mantra I was going through was like, why can't I just connect with my family? My niece is very important to me, but my sister kind of doesn't trust me around her. And that's a whole other thing that, you know. So at some point, my niece came into the trip and I was like, look, you're a good artist. And somewhere I got into I got into Hitler, which is probably why they called the police. I was I don't know what I was saying about Hitler. I never did. But, yeah, but I was talking to my niece in, in you know in the world. In a, I didn't see her, but I mean I was kind of, she was there in my head, and I was like, look, if I, you know, people say if you go back in time, what would you do? I'd kill Hitler. And my thing was like, no, I would like give Hitler a Montessori school. I would make sure he went to you know I would encourage him. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a ridiculous idea, but I was like, I was like, look, you're an artist. Let's make a campaign about loving Hitler. Because I think, I think as well, much as like it's the Come and See revelation. Have you seen the film Come and See no. by Ellen Klimov, the Russian film? No. It's a, exactly. I mean, at the very end, this character, it's in Belarus. They like, they hate the Soviets, and you know, he's he's been through hell. But he was a boy. He now looks like he's a hundred years old. It's been like a month, and he's walking with this gun. He sees this this photograph of Hitler on the ground, and he points at it with such hatred, but then he sees Hitler regress. 
he sees these photos that take him all the way back to being a child. Right. And it ends with his face looking at this infant's face, and he's just shaking because he's like, yeah. what do I do? And, yeah. And, and in, like, sorry. Yeah. in reality, if we could have shown love to Hitler, he wouldn't have, you know, as much as I hate bullies, I would love to not, I would love to help them. If I wasn't so triggered by them, I'd love to do nothing more than to get bullies on so, you know, like, and I still think people, like, I had other experiences, um, there's this guy in the trolley, this guy, uh, this person, I posted, I posted a picture about him years ago, I got a text, apparently he's very touchy on the trolley. So, I was like, hey, I met this person, I, I wrote it, I did this, anyway, we don't need that, but, but this is, there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of people that I feel like deserve kindness that they don't get it because they've done something bad, and I get that, but, you know, give someone a break at some point. Like, you can't demonize them in their whole fucking life. Yeah. Like, what if you it, don't show caring for them, they're never going to change. Yeah, I think it's Rilke who said, um, everything that's terrible is a creature in need of love. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm just going to keep going with the story, but yeah, I really appreciate right. your input. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, again, so I'm, this is part of it. Um, I have a whole mother thing where I'm just processing why I can't tell my mom I love her without her, like, feeling wrong about hearing that. Um, there was more to it. I was I was getting my whole Jim Henson thing, and I was just trying to like, I was basically giving my death as a gift to the world, to be like, why are we fucking doing all this dumb shit? Like, let's just be together. And that was the suicide part, where I'm like, I'm done. I'll see you. Mm -hmm. And then I thought I was reborn. So here's where it gets weird. It's <laughs> weird. After after convincing my my niece who's 16 to join in a worldwide campaign about loving Hitler. Here's where it gets As one does. Here's where it gets weird. Um, I think I fell asleep. I woke up. I, in the past, when I've done mushrooms, I use it to like let go. I like I purposely ruin one of my favorite shirts to just be, to be like I don't. This stuff doesn't mean anything to me. Like, you know, I don't love it day to day, but I feel like it's sometimes good to trash your own the things that you think are so sacred. It's good to let go of. Uh, I, I basically what I did was I, I went on a rant, a little bit of a rampage that apparently sounded worse than it was. I was, you know, I was destroying my stuff, but kind of the way you fight with someone like this. I did, I did just, I picked, I destroyed probably two or three of my favorite vinyl, which was hard, but I think it was again letting go. I destroyed my DR Hooker album, which I, I'm still a little bit sad about, and I destroyed the album on that that book on. I'll buy them again, but I don't know. I needed it, but like, but like again, I had thirty records. I just destroyed two, and I threw the rest out of my room. I uh, took my guitar. I'm like, fuck you, guitar. I took off one string. I wasn't trying to destroy everything. At some point, I have a door. I have a closet door, and it's off the hinges. And I have, and I have an exercise bike in front of it that keeps it up. At some point, either I, in the same way I was destroying, I either put it on me, or I took it down, or it fell from clumsiness. That made a big fucking noise. But again, I was just I was just letting go. I was like, I was screaming. I was like, I mean, I kept saying I'm done. And I think, I, you know, when I woke up, I was like, I'm done being, I'm, I quit my job two days later. Oh, I got a bag. I'm like, I'm done being bullied. I'm done doing things that don't make sense. I'm done being part of this dumb fucking world. I'm going to do something outside of it. I'm going to, I don't care about money. I don't, I'm done with capitalism. I'll just, I mean, I'm, I had all these ideas about like, you know, more, I had all these visions about like creating more, um, after I was done with that, I've been reaching out to people who are like, 
doing the same work I'm doing to bring good to other people and I'm trying to organize them because I want to have some kind of a collective thing that at least gives people fucking health insurance. So I mean, I learned a lot, but, it, but I kept saying I'm done. Like I'm just like, I'm done playing this fucking bullshit. Thanks for checking that out. Please check out uh, Joseph's um, various social media accounts under his name, Joseph Gervasi, G-E-R-V-A-S-I, and you can kind of follow what he's been doing in his life. Um, got some really exciting episodes coming up. Please check out our website, vintagejournalsarchive.com. One of our main uh, sponsors is Risk Podcast, which is run by Kevin Allison, who is also a sponsor. Um, Kevin is our coach, and Kevin's been amazing. Uh, I have There's links in this episode of Kevin's coaching services, and also Risk Podcast, which is hugely influential in our approach to this podcast. So, you know, please check out uh, Risk. It's, it's, it's really amazing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing this stuff without influences such as Risk. So thank you. Enjoy your day or night, whatever time it is, wherever you are. Thanks. Thought in different ways Look around the world today Richie, I love you